welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. We're in a series of messages uh, based on the theme of hope. Uh, matter of fact, we've called it Seven uh, Stories of Hope. And what we're doing each week uh, for seven weeks is to focus on a particular passage of Scripture uh, in the New Testament and, and see how we can draw uh, some thoughts of, of hope out of that passage of Scripture. Um, our life groups, our small uh, groups, uh, are studying uh, along with this. In other words, the message I preach today, whenever they meet this week, uh, they'll be looking at it in, in more detail. But also in the process of our small groups, we're encouraging people to learn how to tell uh, the scriptures, the stories that we're looking at, uh, not like you're whipping a Bible out and preaching a message to somebody, but instead just paraphrasing it, telling it in your own words uh, to where you can share hope with people. Uh, that you may come in contact with at work or in the, the marketplace or uh, wherever it might be. Uh, I think I told you the first week we started the series, we're even hoping that some of you uh, may decide on your own to start a small group either in your community uh, where you live or a small group maybe at lunchtime uh, where you work at and ask people if you'd like to come sit down and uh, let's talk about some stories of, of hope. The uh, story of hope we're focusing on today is found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 uh, through 17. And we're going to talk about the hope of approaching God. I think that's a pretty important hope that we need to know about for us to be able to understand uh, that that you and I can have the hope uh, to actually uh, approach God. Because if we will remember uh, God is holy, then that might perk us our ears up a little bit. Well, how in the world can I approach God? Uh, in the verses that we're looking at today, the first section we're going to look at, Jesus is going to be telling a story of two different ways that people approach God. One way works and one way doesn't. The, the tragedy is that a lot of people in our world today uh, are trying to approach God in a way that does not work, that we'll see represented in this passage of Scripture. The tragedy of that is twofold. Uh, one, it can cause that person themselves to miss eternity with God, to miss heaven, to miss having their sins forgiven, to miss really being able to approach a holy God uh, if they try and approach God in the wrong way. Uh, The second full tragedy is this. There are so many people that are trying to approach God in the wrong way, in a self-righteous way, based upon their own works, their own goodness, and things like that, that it causes other people to get the wrong message. In fact, it might even make some people in our world today feel like they don't even have any hope of approaching God because they recognize they're screwed up. (laughs) And they're seeing the religious crowd act like they're okay, and that kind of makes them feel like they don't have a a hope themselves to to approach God or go to heaven uh, one day. So it's an important thing that we understand about this hope of approaching God. People in the culture that we live in today need hope. I uh, talked about it some on Easter Sunday uh, a couple weeks ago about how we're almost having an epidemic of hopelessness in our culture because of everything we're facing in, in the world that we live in today. So people need to know that they can have the hope of approaching God. To start with, I want us to do a comparison because that's what Jesus does. There's a comparison of people approaching God in verse 19 through 14. 
Jesus tells a, a parable there that, that more or less draws a contrast or a comparison between two approaches that people may take to try and approach God. Not just then, but still yet today. Look at these verses, verse 9 through 14. Uh, the Bible says he also, talking about Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's the story that Jesus tells, a parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, because these other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this second man in the story that Jesus was going to talk about that went down to the temple to pray that day. He goes on and he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector took a different approach. Instead of the tax collector standing up proudly reciting how good he was and everything that he had done, the tax collector stands afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the religious Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this story, this parable that, that, that Jesus tells, to begin with, he, he, there's some reasons for this comparison. There's some reasons for this contrast that, that Jesus draws between these two individuals. The reasons that Jesus tells this story. It was found in verse 9. It said, he also told this parable of some who trusted in themselves and that were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, Jesus is telling a story that he knew the listeners needed to hear because some of those listeners acted like the people in the story, the people in the parable that Jesus is going to share with them. Now, some of you may be familiar with what a parable means. Some of you may not, but a parable is more or less a story that's kind of out of common life. It's something that people could commonly experience in their life that Jesus would tell to make a moral point. The, the root word that it comes from means to throw alongside or to cast alongside of. So in other words, when Jesus would tell a parable, Jesus was taking a situation in life and he would cast it alongside people that needed to hear it. And that's what Jesus is doing in this instance. There were people in the crowd who thought they were okay. They thought they were righteous and they were looking down on everyone else, condemning everyone else. So Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing what was going on in their mind and the way they would try to approach God based upon their own goodness, Jesus decides to take this story and throw it beside their lives and make them see themselves in this story. So that's what he's doing with this parable. They were trusting in themselves. They were convinced, and, and the word in the Greek can mean either true or false, depends on the situation. In this story, it's definitely a, a false hope that they had. They were falsely trusting in themselves. They were relying in on an inward certainty that wasn't a certainty at all in this particular story. 
They were believing that they were righteous, this group that Jesus was talking to. They, they thought that they were innocent, holy, or just. They were okay, just like they were. And because they had that type of mentality, that type of mindset, they had contempt toward other people. They would make other people as though they were utterly nothing, or they would despise other people and look down on other people because of their self-righteous viewpoint of themselves. That's the reason that Jesus tells this story. There were people there in the crowd that needed to, to hear it. Regrettably, there are people still yet today that need to hear that story. Because there are people that still act self-righteous. They think they can trust in themselves, their own goodness, their own works, whatever the case might be. And all the while, as they exalt themselves, they're looking down on other people with contempt. So it still is a message that, that, that we need to hear. That's the reason Jesus tells this story. He had a specific purpose or reason in making this comparison between how two people approach God. Some still try to approach God through their own righteousness and all the while judging and condemning others while they never see their own sins. But the correct approach we're going to see in just a minute as we look at the tax collector. Not only is there a reason for the comparison, let's think about the persons in this story, this parable, the persons in this comparison that Jesus makes for a moment. Two men, as I read a moment ago, went up to the temple to pray. You've got two men going to the same place for the same purpose. But the way they approach things is very different. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Now, I've already talked some in this series about a Pharisee, but just to be sure everyone remembers what a Pharisee was like, in that day and time, a Pharisee would have been a very religious person that tended to go to great lengths to get people to think, oh, how godly that person is, how great that person is, how religious that person is. Jesus even alluded to them being like people that would come and fight over the front seats, the best seats in, in, in the place because they wanted to be seen of everyone else. Now, we don't have that problem here. I don't know if some of you think I'm going to spit that far as I preach or what. But, you know, we almost never have anyone on the front, front row. You're afraid to get that close up here for, for, for some reason. But that's the way Jesus described them. Pridefully, they wanted the best seats. They would go around and, and do things trying to draw attention to themselves. They wanted people to, to view them as being kind of high and holy. That, that's the way a Pharisee would act. And in the process of it, the Pharisees would exalt themselves and they would look down on others. Matter of fact, the Pharisees kind of had an attitude that we saw last week in the story last week of Jesus being in a Pharisee's home having a meal there, being invited in, and the sinful lady comes in from off the street to cry over his feet and, and, and wipe his feet with her hair and anoint his feet with oil. And that Pharisee is upset because he didn't want to be around people like that. That's kind of the attitude of Pharisees, then and still yet today, regrettably, because people can be pharisaical and be, be very uh, religious, and it's like we don't want sinners around us. We don't want sinners in our churches. I'm sorry. The Bible says all of us are sin. I think we're kind of messed up on that one. But that was the attitude of the Pharisee. He came in and he started praying. And to me, it's almost comical what takes place. It's sad, it's tragic. But he comes in and he's praying, telling God how good he himself was. I'm of the opinion you and I can't tell God anything. 
And yet he comes in trying to tell God in, in a fashion, it looks like the way Jesus tells the story, in a fashion, he's not just praying to God. He's saying in a way that he wants as many people around him to hear it. So they will hear how good he is also. Now, on the other hand, we've got a tax collector that went to the same temple for the same purpose, I said a moment ago, to pray. A tax collector in that day and time was very much hated and looked down upon. A tax collector in that day and time uh, was viewed many times as being someone that would skim off the top, and, and he's taking money uh, for himself. An illustration of that would be Zacchaeus in the Bible. If you remember Zacchaeus being a tax collector, and he was taking the money uh, for himself. Now, you know, they, they hated the tax collectors in, in that day and time. I, I probably shouldn't bring that topic up because some of you just had to file your taxes, didn't you? Some of you probably are mad at tax collectors, you know, but, but because of that. Well, the tax collector was also hated, not just for that reason, but he was also looked down upon hated because the tax collectors in that day and time worked for the Roman Empire. And they were extracting taxes from their fellow Jews to be paid to the Romans. So in other words, the tax collector was just really, really messed up in that culture. And people looked down on them and hated them and didn't like them at all. But the tax collector understood he was messed up. There's some lessons in this comparison that we need to draw. There's a reason Jesus tells the story. There are people there that were acting like the ones that he's going to tell the story about, the parable. There are the two people there that he's talking about, the Pharisee and a tax collector, one very self-righteous, one was uh, even recognized himself as a sinner. But there are some lessons that you and I need to grab from this comparison, this story, this parable that Jesus tells. He said in verse number 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like these extortioners. They're unjust. They're, they're adulterers. I'm not like this tax collector over here. Instead, I do all this stuff, God. I fast twice a week. Uh, they would do so on uh, Mondays and Thursdays, all, although they weren't under a scriptural uh, rule that they had to do that. I get tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, instead of standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So to begin with, there's some, uh, there's some negative lessons, some bad lessons that we can learn from this story of how the Pharisee approaches God. The, the first negative lesson is this. The Pharisees seem to have a religious exclusiveness because the Bible tells us the Pharisee standing by himself. He didn't want to be identified with these sinners out here. He didn't want to look like the rest of these people who were extortioners, who maybe were adulterers, who were unjust. He didn't want to be like them. He didn't want to be like the tax collector. So he kind of stands off over himself and maybe in a way that was prominent to where people would hear him. So he's kind of like a, a, a religious separatist. And like I said, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We, we can get so concerned about you and I trying to live holy lives that we fail to understand that Jesus ate with sinners and that we need to eat with sinners and that we need to be willing to get our hands dirty to minister to people and to love people and to show them the love of God. So he's kind of exclusive in the way he viewed himself. Second negative lesson we can learn from the approach of this Pharisee is, is this. He also had a religious self-righteousness. Here's how he prayed. We've already read it a couple of times. God, I thank you 
that I'm not like other men. I'm not like the extortioners, which, by the way, he would have been calling out the sin, probably, of that tax collector because they were known for skimming off the top, I said, for themselves. He said, I'm glad I'm not like the unjust people that are in this temple. Maybe there were some in the temple that the tax collector knew of had committed adultery. Or maybe the tax collector that he is looking down upon and criticizing and condemning, maybe he knew the tax collector was guilty of all those things, being an extortioner, unjust, adultery, or whatever the case is. But he stands up and he's praying and saying, I thank God I'm, I'm not like all of them. Now, how would that make you feel if you went to the temple one day, if you came to church one day, and during the service, someone stands up, and uh, I'm going to be mean to Joe, man, he just happened to be the closest one. God, I'm so thankful I'm not like Joe. I'm so thankful I'm not like the rest of these people. God, I'm so thankful I do all this stuff. But I I thank you, God, that I'm not like this evil man over here, Joe. That'd make you want to come back to church next week, wouldn't it? (laughs) And yet that was the, the attitude, the approach of what was taking place. You see, Jesus gave a warning about praying kind of like this Pharisee does in self-righteousness because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen of others. In other words, the motive wasn't to talk to God. The motive was to wear a mask, act like something you're not, uh, to be a hypocrite and to stand there and pray in such a way that others would see and hear you and think, my goodness, how holy that person is. How, how religious that person is. Regrettably, that still happens. I, it took a while for me after I was in the ministry to figure that out. But I've been in some worship service revivals and things like that. And I think the goal was somebody wanted to outpray the other person <laughs> and prove they could wax eloquent in their prayers. Jesus said that it may be seen of others. And then he says this, truly I say to you that they've received their reward. In other words, if your motive for doing what you did, saying what you said, praying what you pray, if your motive is for other people to think good of you, then Jesus said that's all the reward that you get out of it. I don't know. I think I'd rather have some reward in heaven one day, wouldn't you? So another part of the negative lesson we need to learn is, is that this Pharisee displays this self-righteousness. He also displays religious pridefulness. That's another negative lesson we need to learn from from his actions here. As he's standing there, he's rehearsing. Once again, how do you tell God something? God already knew how many times he fasted. God already knew what he would tithe. But you see, the Pharisees had fine-tuned some things and added man-made rules to it in a way that would make them appear to be holier to people that they would meet. I I would probably suggest to you that what this Pharisee prays is probably true. He probably was fasting twice a week. He probably was tithing of all that he got. But his motive in his heart was wrong. 
The, the Bible even tells us, Jesus talks about how they, they would pray, the Pharisees would pray sometimes, and, and they, would, they would pray and then they, they would fast, and they would go around with long faces. And the reason they'd go around with the long faces when they were fasting, looking so pitiful, they were dying for someone to ask, what's wrong? Why are you looking so sad? Because I'm fasting. Thank you for asking. Now I get to tell you, I'm fasting. And they would tithe in small microscopic amounts for the same reason. See, they were not under an obligation to fast twice a week. In the Bible, they were under an obligation, the Jews were under an obligation to fast at least once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then there would be other times if for some reason they recognized how messed up they were as a nation and they, and they, and they gathered together for what they call like a holy convocation or something to pray and seek God and, and ask for revival and renewal and restoration, then, then they would fast. Nowhere does the Bible tell them to pray twice a week. They did that for the wrong motive. Jesus said this about the way they were given. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe men and deal and come. In other words, you know, really small herbs. You're concerned about that. Because if they tithe all that stuff, they could go around and brag about everything that they'd given. But Jesus said, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So he said, you're going around wanting people to see how much you give and how, how detailed and holy you are and what you give. And he said, you're missing the most important stuff. You're missing justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're missing ministry that you ought to be doing for other people. So that's a lesson that we need to learn from the story of this, of this Pharisee. A quote I found this week, uh, the guy's name is uh, uh, Louis Benez, and I've never found anything by him before, but it, but it stuck out when I was doing some studying. And, and his quote said this, No man can really at one and the same time call attention to himself and glorify God. I think that's probably true, don't you? Because if you're calling attention to yourself, you're not giving the attention to God. And the glory to God. And that's what the Pharisees were really, really bad at. So that's why there are a lot of negative lessons we can learn from them. On the other hand, in this parable that Jesus tells us, there are some positive lessons that we can learn from the way the tax collector takes his approach toward God. Because as we look at the story of the tax collector, we can find, first of all, that he had personal humility. He said the tax collector standing afar off. It's like he, he was, didn't even want to try and draw near. Maybe he knew there was a bunch of hateful Pharisees there and they were going to mistreat him. So maybe that's why he's standing afar off. You ever thought about that might be why we can't get sinners in church sometimes? So he's standing afar off and he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. It's as though in his heart, he, he felt like, I'm not, I'm not worthy to even be here. I, God, I, I'm not even worthy to kind of even look toward you, nevertheless to, to, to come here and start to, to cry out to you in, in prayer. So he practices personal humility. And I would submit to you this morning that personal humility is a vital ingredient if we're going to approach God. 
Because if we try to approach God out of pridefulness, saying, God, look at me, look how good I am, look at all that I've done, and everything like that, we're not going to get too far with God. We're not going to impress God very much with the things that you and I think we can do and that we can bring to the table and we can tell God we've been so great and so good for But if we get real before God, if we'll practice personal humility, and if we will admit who we are and what we've done and how much we need mercy and how much we need grace, that's the way that we can get the the attention of God. The mistake people make is this, and that's the same mistake the Pharisee made. The mistake we make is to compare ourselves with other people. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, God, look at me. Look how good I am. I thank God I'm not like all the rest of these people here. He's making the wrong comparison, though. You see, if you and I would make the right comparison, here's the right comparison. You want to know what the right comparison is? Don't compare yourself with me. Don't compare yourself with some other pastor or some deacon or some other Christian. And our church doesn't need to compare ourselves with some other church. And let's come away with the idea, well, we're about as holy as some other church down the road. Or I'm about as good as somebody else I see at church and things like that. Or I'm better than these people because of how sinful they are. That's the wrong comparison. Here's the right comparison. You compare yourself to Jesus Christ. You compare yourself to God in his holiness, and if you'll compare yourself to Jesus and to the holiness of God, then you shouldn't have a lot of problem getting to the state of humility in your life. If we would have the right comparison, and in that way we would admit how, how messed up we, we are. Not only do we get a positive lesson from this tax collector's approach to God in his humility, but in his personal repentance. The Bible said that he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I, I think the action of doing this, maybe he's, you might not realize it, but I, but I, I think that is kind, Jesus, including in this story, is kind of telling us this. Right here's where the problem is. Inside our hearts, that's where the problem is. In this tax collector beating upon his chest, having compared himself probably with the holiness of God, understand how righteous God is and how holy God is. It's easy for him to practice humility, but it also drives him toward repentance. And he beats upon his own chest. He knew that he was the problem. He knew his heart was a problem. And here's what he does. To start with, he cries out for mercy. The word for mercy really means he's crying out for God to conciliate. He's not dependent upon himself. He, he's crying out for God to atone for his sin. He's crying out for God to be merciful. He's crying out to God to make reconciliation because this tax collector understood that he couldn't make reconciliation himself. And, and if you and I want to approach a holy God, it's indispensable that we have humility in our lives. It's also indispensable that you and I cry out for mercy. I can't bring reconciliation myself between myself and a holy God. He had to do it for me in his son. He has to extend mercy to me. And that's what this sinner cries out for. He cries out for, for mercy. And that's the same thing we have to do. We have to admit to God that he's right and we're wrong. He said he cried out and he admitted that he was a sinner. He's admitting that he missed the mark and he wouldn't share in the prize. He couldn't earn God's heaven. He had missed God's mark because God is so holy and and so perfect. See, that's what repentance really is. Some people get in their mind that when they hear the word repentance, because they've heard people put it like this, 
They think they repentance of their sins, and that's not what the Bible tells you. The Bible says repent of your sins, singular. Repenting of your sins, plural. People get the idea, well, if I'm going to repent, I have to, man, I have to get really sorrowful in my heart, and I have to fall somewhere before God on an altar, and I have to detail out everything I've ever done this wrong. If I'm going to repent, I have to think of all that I've done this wrong and ask God to forgive me of all that I've done this wrong and, and bring every little thing to light and bring it before God. You realize there's a problem with that? You and I don't have the capacity to remember everything we've done this wrong. That's why that is not a true picture of biblical repentance. I can't remember everything that I've done this wrong. And we're told to repent of our sin and repentance in the Bible. It really, it's pictured by a Greek word that we get our word metamorphosis from. And it gives the picture of us changing our mind. In other words, I come to the point that I agree with God. God, you say that I'm a sinner. That's right, I am. Instead of us arguing with God, we agree with God that we are a sinner. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of, of our heart where we recognize we're sinners and we turn from our sin and we turn to God, agreeing with God. And the only solution that we have for our sin is Jesus being crucified on the cross. Personal repentance. We, if we want to approach a holy God, we, we better approach him with humility, but we also better approach him with repentance, and if we fail to approach him with repentance, if you fail to admit that you're a sinner, you're lying to yourself and you're also lying to God. And you're calling God a liar. First John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If you say you're not a sinner, you're lying to yourself. Be honest. You know that you are. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, oh, good news here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he goes on and he says, if we say we've not sinned, we make him. Who? We make God out to be a liar and his truth is not in us. Can, can I make a suggestion to you? I don't think you're on positive ground if you start out trying to approach God by saying, God, you're a liar. I'm okay, don't need you, don't need humility, don't need mercy, don't, don't need repentance, I don't need Jesus, you're a liar. That's why we need to learn these positive lessons in this tax collector story. We need to have humility and we need to have repentance. But notice the conclusion of this story that Jesus gives, the conclusion of this comparison. Because it's kind of a surprise, it would have been in that day and time. He draws a conclusion that would have maybe shocked people because people in that day and time were so used to the Pharisees being considered the really, really, really religious people that were really, really close to God. And the reason people thought that is because the Pharisees told them that all the time. But here's the conclusions that Jesus draws. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, talking about the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's kind of like a, a shock in this story. You, you mean the guy that is really, really religious, and the guy that fasts twice a week, and the guy that gets a tithe of everything that he does, and the guy that said, hey, I'm not like all these other sinners out here. You, you tell me that he didn't go down to his house justified before God. Instead, it was the tax collector who admitted he was a sinner, who beat on his chest and said, God, I need mercy. 
See, that's what Jesus says. He says it's the, that one that cried out for mercy. It's that tax collector that went down to his house justified by God. And to be honest with you, the only thing that happened with the Pharisee is he went home self-satisfied because he had said what he wanted to say about himself. He was satisfied with himself. I love the word justified. If you've been around here very long, you heard us deal with it a whole lot when we were going verse by verse through the book of Romans a few years ago. And I told you as we were doing that study, one simple way to remember what justified means is to break down the syllables just as if you've never sinned. Because that's really what justification does for you. It means to be declared righteous by God on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't mean you are righteous. It doesn't mean that you were not a sinner. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means that God, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, dying in your place, that God now looks at you when you believe in Jesus, when you place trust in Jesus, God looks at you as though you have never sinned. Matter of fact, in that day and time, it was a legal term that also meant this. It meant all the evidence against you has been destroyed. Now, if you had been arrested for some major crime, and all of a sudden it came to the trial date, and they go looking for all the evidence, and somehow the evidence had been destroyed, they have to let you go because they don't have anything to prove the case. Some of the deputies we have here that are members are thinking, they better not destroy the evidence. I worked hard to get that evidence. A guy said, I'm here, he kind of serves like a judge in the penal system. He's thinking, thinking, they better not destroy the evidence. (laughs) But that's what God did through Jesus. When we receive Christ as our personal Savior, the blood of Jesus washed away the sin. We're given the very righteousness of God. We're told that in the Bible. Look at the next verse in in 2 Corinthians. It says, for our sake, for our sake, he, talking about Jesus, or he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're guilty. But he put all of our sin on Jesus. And all the evidence is destroyed through the shed blood of Jesus so that when we believe in him by faith in Jesus Christ, all the evidence is gone. And we're the very righteousness of God because God gives us the righteousness of his son. The Bible says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, you're not saved by obeying the law, even though the law and the prophets talked about it. They bore witness of it. It says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who do what? Believe. That's our hope. That's the way we can approach a a holy God. If we will do so with humility, if we will do so with repentance, if we'll exercise faith in in Jesus Christ, he justifies us and makes us just like we never sinned. That's why in this story, Jesus said that tax collector went to his house justified. But the one that thought he was okay, the one that thought he was really, really religious didn't. And then Jesus kind of closed out the parable by saying this. More or less, he says, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. God will exalt you. If you exalt yourself, God is going to humble you. He will bring you down. 
Now, on the other side of this parable, after Jesus told it, after he, he, he gave this comparison between two people trying to approach God in two very different ways. One was a very self-righteous way, thinking he was okay. The other one was a sinner over here admitting he needed mercy and grace, forgiveness, and asking God to forgive him. On the other side of that parable, as we continue reading in Luke 18, verse 15 to 17, Jesus also, through a situation that happens, we, we can find an illustration or a pattern of approaching God through a situation that happens as Jesus is there with his disciples. The Bible said in Luke 18, verse 15 through 17, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he may touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, the little, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he looked at them and said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus had just told a parable illustrating about how people should and should not try and approach God. Now, here come parents bringing their infants, bringing their children. The word infant there doesn't mean just a baby. It could be used on up even to a teenager. Which, by the way, was a common practice in that day and time. If they knew there was a rabbi happened to be in town uh, speaking and teaching whatever, they would bring their children and ask the rabbi to touch them and pray over them. So it was a normal thing that should have happened. But for some reason on this day, when they're bringing the children to Jesus, the disciples kind of take this mindset. Well, Jesus is too busy. Don't bother Jesus. I mean, after all, children and women and everything were really minimized in that culture in that day and time. Jesus don't have time for them. So Jesus kind of calls a timeout and has a huddle over there and gets his team around and says, guys, you just missed it pretty bad. He said, let the children come to me. Which, by the way, here's a little bit of a side message I'll give you in that regard. We ought to love children, care for children, teach children. If you want to find something you can be involved with in this church, we can always use more people in children's ministry. Matter of fact, when we get ready to launch a women's ministry and a men's ministry uh, here in just a few weeks, we're going to need more people helping with children. Jesus said that's a good thing to do. We ought to work with children. By the way, Jesus loves children on this side of the womb and on the other side of the womb also because he's the one that allows a child to be conceived we need to respect life and value life Jesus did that's your free sermon that's not part of the sermon today but there I threw it out anyway he says let the children come to me for such belongs to the kingdom of God then he said this and this is what I want us to focus on for a moment Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What did Jesus mean by that statement? I want to answer that first of all by us focusing on what Jesus did not mean. What does Jesus not mean by that phrase, by receiving the kingdom of God like a child? What he does not mean is innocence. A lot of people read that and they get in their mind, oh, Jesus is saying if you're going to go to heaven that you need to to be like a little child. And we get all these warm, cuddly feelings about, well, we need to be be innocent like little children if we're going to get into heaven. And, And we do have to be innocent, but it's through the blood of Jesus. It's not by our own actions. 
But that's not what Jesus means here. He's not telling his disciples unless you become like a little child because, you see, they can't come become like a little child. Jesus is telling adults, unless you become like these children, you're not going to go to heaven. Well, these adults would not be innocent. These adults were already sinners. There's no way that Jesus is saying you have to become innocent like this little child in order to go to heaven. You see, because no one is innocent. The Bible says this, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is innocent. We are all sinners by, by our nature. Because Adam sinned, all the human race went down to sin. We're all sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. We ourselves choose sin. We're guilty of sin. So Jesus didn't look at his disciples who were adult men and said, hey, unless you become innocent like a little child that's never ever sinned, there's no way you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Instead, I think what Jesus does mean by receiving the kingdom of God like a child is, is this. Remember what he had just happened. He just told a story a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. He was talking about the attitudes of their heart. One was self-righteous. One, on the other hand, was humble and repented of all that he had done. I think Jesus is still focusing on the attitude of someone's heart. When Jesus said, unless... You become like one of these children, you'll know we're into the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Unless you turn loose of all the claims of your own personal goodness, unless you turn loose of your personal merit, unless you turn loose of thinking there's things that you have done that puts God to your debt, to where God has to let you into heaven, unless you turn loose of your own self-righteousness, Unless you be like an empty child and come empty-handed saying, God, I don't have any merit. There's not anything I have done that whereby you ought to let me into heaven. God, I'm not good enough. Uh, God, I'm, I'm just like a little child. I, I, I don't have anything to bring whereby you owe me to let me into heaven. And unless we come empty-handed before him and turn loose of our own dreams of goodness and self-righteousness, I think that's what Jesus is saying. That you don't even have a chance to get started on the right path toward receiving my son, toward receiving grace and mercy, unless you come to the point you turn loose of trying to hold on to all that stuff. Paul was writing one time, and he said, I count it all for loss, and he even referred to it as dung in, in, in another place. You know what dung is, don't you? Any of you come to church today holding on to dung, wanting to hold it real tight, hold on to it? It's going to stink. You have to turn loose of it. Quit depending upon who you are. Quit depending on what you think is your own spiritual pedigree. Because that's all a lot of people have. A lot of people have, well, well, grandma took me to church and, and my daddy was a deacon or my granddad was a preacher or whatever the case might be. None of those things are going to impress God. We have to come like a little child to where we 
understand that, that we don't deserve it, that we can't earn it, that we don't have any of our own merit to bring. And instead, we have to come with an innocent type of faith to where we trust in what God has done for us in Jesus. To where we have the innocent faith of a child coming and saying, God, I, I, I don't have anything I can hold on to, but God, I believe you. I believe what you say in your word. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. We have to, we have to turn loose of what we think we have done, and we have to trust totally in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I read part of this a moment ago. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the verse goes on. A lot of you are familiar with the Romans' road to salvation. It's kind of a system to where, you know, someone years ago packaged verses in Romans and laid it out in such a way that we're telling people they're sinners and they we're telling people how they can be saved and, and, and then showing them that they are saved. Uh, it's always been a strange thing to me that they only read the first part of Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23, and said, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then they depart from there to go somewhere else to teach about salvation when, my goodness, salvation is taught right here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. We saw that word earlier. All the evidence is destroyed. We're declared righteous by God. We're justified by his grace, not by our merit. Not by something we deserve, but his grace as a gift, not as payment for our works, but as a free gift through the redemption, through the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross for us. God put him forward, Jesus as a propitiation, as that which was necessary, that payment that was necessary, that blood poured out on the mercy seat of God to be received by what? By faith. That's the way we can approach God. That's the hope that we have in approaching God, not trying to emulate this Pharisee that we read about in this story. Our hope to approach God is to approach God with the faith and trust of a child. Instead of trusting in ourselves and what we've done, we have to totally trust and depend upon the finished work of Jesus. We have to lose the attitude of the Pharisee and the actions of the Pharisee. And instead, we need to be more like this tax collector and come before God with humility and honesty before him. We need to have the attitude of a child, not pretending you deserve anything or that you're good enough to go to heaven, but admit that you're not. And trust completely and totally in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, at the end of that parable, he said, I'll tell you that one went home justified and the other one didn't. So my question for you today is this. How are you going to go home today? How will you go home? You can go home satisfied by yourself. You can come to church and, and act like you're good and, you know, and, and God ought to be blessed to have you on his team and name everything that you've done, how good you are, and look down on the other sinners in the world. You can come to church like that all the time. You can go home satisfied with yourself all the time. Or you can go home justified by God. Understanding that he's destroyed all the evidence through Jesus dying on the cross and through faith in him and him alone. 
You can come to church and give a self-congratulatory speech. Or you can cry out for God's mercy. And the way to approach a holy and righteous God and for us to have the hope of doing so is to cry out for his mercy. You know what makes that so hard for us in this day and time? We live in a culture that is really unpopular to feel bad about yourself. We don't like feeling guilt. Instead, we live in a culture that says you're okay. You need to feel good about yourself. You need to exalt yourself. We, we live in a culture that, that feeling good about yourself is much more in fashion or in vogue than it is to be found beating your chest and crying out for mercy before God. As a matter of fact, if you do that very much in this culture, they're going to send an ambulance for you and put a white jacket around you and send you in a place and give you counseling for several days to try and get you to have a better self-image of yourself. See, that's why it's hard for us to come to this point in our lives to where we're not like the Pharisee, but we're like the tax collector and we beat our chest and say, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Because all the world is telling us, oh, you're okay. Well, we're not okay. And it is a positive thing to feel guilt from God's viewpoint. And it is a positive thing for us to humble ourselves. And it is a very positive thing for us to beat on our chest and cry out for mercy. God's grace cannot be found without humility. God's grace, salvation, can't be found without asking for his mercy, admitting you're a sinner, asking him to save you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.